Beloved, please open your Bibles for me to Romans chapter 11 this morning. And I was kind of debating on how far back to go, um, really, to, to begin reading this morning. And really, I could go back to chapter 9. But we won't. <laughs> I don't want you to stand forever. I know some of you have bad knees. So we'll go back to the beginning of chapter 11. But I want you to remember, I want you to understand that we're coming to a section this morning in which, again, Paul is doing one of his typical Paul Pauline things where he says, okay, what then? And we're, our job then is to kind of stop and think back. What is, what's everything that he's been talking about and, and kind of put our minds on it. So let's stand together. We'll read just from chapter 11 and verse 1 through verse 10. Uh, but our focus this morning will be on, on verses 7 through 10. So let's read this together and then we'll pray and ask the Lord to, to bless our time in his word and we'll, and we'll dig in. Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. And they seek my life. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. And bend their backs forever. Let's pray together. You can be seated. Heavenly Father, God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom resides all wisdom and all truth and all glory and all majesty, Lord, to you be praise. We bow our hearts before you this morning, Father God, confessing that we desperately need you. Confessing, Lord, our sin. Confessing our shortcomings. Confessing, Father, our words and our actions, Father, that are displeasing in your sight. Confessing to you that we cannot be saved by our works because our works are tinged with sin. There's, there's, there's no way that we could in any way make ourselves acceptable in your sight we are in need of grace we stand in need of your sovereign saving and loving grace and we are grateful father god that you have given that to your people that you have given us your grace like that and father we are grateful to you that you choose to reveal yourself to us through your holy word that you speak truth to us that, Father, we need to hear. Truth that arrests our souls. Truth that makes us see we're not the center of the universe. 
truth that makes us to behold you as you are, to behold ourselves as we are, and to see how utterly dependent we are upon you for your compassion and your love. Lord, I pray that you would open your word to us this morning. I pray, Father, that we would think rightly about what your scripture teaches us plainly. I pray that, Father, you would grant to everyone here eyes to see and ears to hear. That, Lord, we would not have a spirit of stupor, but that we would be awake, fully awake, and hearing and responding to your word. God, there is something that will be said this morning by your grace and under the unction of your Holy Spirit that applies to every single person in this room. There's none of us here who will be able to rise up and walk out and say, those words, they're not applicable to me. Because every word of the Lord is purposeful and true. God, I pray that you would grant me the unction of your Holy Spirit right now to speak and to preach your truth in power and with authority and with clarity. And I pray, Lord God, that you would be glorified and exalted and magnified in the preaching of your word. And I pray that there would not be a single soul in this room today that would not encounter the almighty God. And I pray these things in your holy name, your blessed name, your glorious name. Amen. Beloved, we're looking this morning again at electing grace, and we're going to talk about judicial hardening. And I just want to say this before we get into this text this morning. I remember one time that I was preaching on uh, God's sovereign election, and somebody said to me, you know, I brought somebody to church, and they heard you preach on that, and they're never coming back. What do you say to that? And I said, well... Quite honestly, I'm preaching what the Word of God teaches. This is the text that we were in that morning, and so that's the text I preached. And I don't mean this to sound offensive, but your friend will either repent and humble themselves under the Word of God, or they won't. But it's not going to change what I preach. We're going to preach the Word of God, okay? Don't, don't do that. We're going to preach the Word of God. But, but here's the thing. This text that we're looking at this morning, okay? This text that we're going to look at in verses 7 through 10. There are some arresting things in this text. There are some troubling things, maybe, in this text for you. It's not an easy text. Especially when we get to the description that David, or the, the, I'm sorry, the use that Paul has for David's psalm, Psalm 69, that is an, a messianic psalm, but is also an imprecatory psalm, which is a psalm that calls down a curse on unbelievers. It's a little off-putting, and yet it's the Word of God. So this morning, let's just do some things that we need to do, okay? First of all is this, you know, again... This is a summary statement by Paul. He, he does this a lot in Romans, right? What then? What then? What shall we say then, right? We see this over and over again. And there's a reason he does this, okay? Paul knows that he's teaching some pretty dense doctrine. He knows that he's teaching some pretty serious theology here. And he also knows that sometimes when you're teaching that kind of stuff, you got to take a step back and say, all right, everybody take a deep breath. Think about what we've just been talking about. 
Wrap your mind around this remarkable theology that I've just been unfolding to you. You know, under the unction of the Holy Spirit in this inspired epistle that I have written to the Romans. I'm speaking as if I'm Paul. Like you just got to step back for a second and think about all these things. And so before we get into this text this morning, I want us for just a moment to remind ourselves of some of the essential doctrines of the plan of redemption that every serious Christian, and I mean that, every serious Christian should confess and affirm by faith, okay? So I'm just going to give you seven things. I want you to write these down, but I'm, and I'm not going to go particularly slow, so you're going to have to write fast. But I want you to write these seven things down. First of all, when we talk about the essential doctrines of the plan of redemption, the first thing that we must confess is that salvation is all of the triune God, right? It is all the work of the triune God, salvation. Think about it. God is the one who planned it in in the eternal councils of heaven, right? The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who took on human flesh and who purchased our salvation for his people by his own blood. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who bestows that salvation upon sinners according to his sovereign will. The first thing we've got to affirm, the first thing we've got to confess, the first thing we've got to believe is that salvation is all of the triune God. He does it all, right? But then second, the men and the women and the children who make up the church, right, who make up the body of Christ, all of them, every single one, was foreknown, individually foreknown by God in eternity past. In other words, they were foreloved, chosen to be the objects of God's saving grace, chosen out of a mass of fallen and sinful humanity. Why? Not because of anything in them. Not because of any merit. Again, not because of their works but simply because, according to his sovereign will and desire, God determined to set his love upon them. But why? Because. Because why? Because. That's as far as we go. God doesn't tell us why. But Scripture tells us clearly that he does, in fact, choose those whom he loves. Third, God set his love upon us before the foundation of the world, before anything was created He elected and predestined His children for salvation for this purpose, to be conformed to the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He chose us that we might be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons, right? Fourth, God irresistibly calls us in time. That is, In our lifetime, in our days upon this earth, God irresistibly calls us and draws us to himself by regenerating the spiritually dead. By making those who are dead, spiritually dead, dead in their soul, making them to live again. Right? To be born from above. He takes away our hardened hearts. He gives to us a heart that responds to His offer of grace. He grants to us repentance. He gives to us the very faith by which we lay hold of Christ. He does it as a gift. Causing us to call upon Jesus as both Savior and Lord for the salvation that He alone can give. Number five. 
God justifies us by counting the sin and the guilt-bearing and the wrath-extinguishing death of Jesus Christ as our own. And when Jesus died, he counts that as our own death. When Christ died as our representative, standing in our place, with the guilt of our sins upon his shoulders, he counted that as our judgment. And he grants us forgiveness. And he clothes us in the perfect merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he places us in a right standing before him. And grants us access to the throne of God and to God himself. Sixth, God ordains both the ends and the means of salvation. He declares that in order for his elect people to believe... That in order for his elect people to actually come to salvation, that the gospel must be preached. And it must be received by faith. In order that the elect may be saved. He ordains the ends, but he also ordains the means. And then seventh, though salvation is all of God and it's bestowed by his grace, those who reject the revelation of the true God and, uh, and of His Christ are under the just condemnation and the wrath of God for their own sin. Because of their own sin. They are condemned and they face judgment in hell. Not because they are not elect, but because they are sinful Hateful, stubborn, unrepentant, sinful rebels against God. It is not God's fault that any is lost. Nobody will be saved apart from God's grace, which no one deserves. But no one will be lost who is not a rebellious sinner. And God is not unjust. In choosing some sinners for salvation and leaving others in their sin. Because those who are left in their sin don't receive injustice. They receive perfect justice. And God has mercy upon those whom he has mercy. And he hardens those whom he hardens. Now listen, those are seven plain straightforward, biblically sound doctrinal statements regarding salvation that Paul has put forth in this letter. Not for us to wrangle over. Not for us to debate as to whether or not God could have had a better plan. Not for us to argue about, but simply for us to believe. And in believing, to treasure and to hold fast. Listen, beloved, if we are truly the recipients of God's sovereign and steadfast love, these are doctrines That God loved us and saved us and sought us and chose us. These are doctrines that should fuel our worship. They ought to create awe and reverence toward God. They ought to cause in us amazement that He would save any of us. Especially me. It needs to be personal. They ought to produce in us an unrelenting gratitude and love and devotion to the Lord and an inextinguishable joy in us who have been rescued by His grace from the eternal wrath that we'd burned. Despite our sin and our iniquity, despite our willful stubbornness and rebellion, 
God chose to save us for the joy that was set before him of saving for himself a people. The Lord Jesus Christ endured the cross, despising the shame and rose again from the dead. The Holy Spirit has made us to be born from above and raised us from the dead and convicted us of our sin and of God's righteousness and of the judgment that is to come. He's granted to us the gift of repentance and faith. And when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in Christ, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of God who is the guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. He leads us into sanctification. He leads us into conformity to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ through the, through the renewing of our hearts and our minds by the gracious gift of the Word of God. And by God's grace, we stand secure in the turbulence and the tumult of this present evil age. We are unshakable. We are unwavering. And we rest in Him who loves us with an everlasting love. God's left nothing to chance in your salvation. Praise God for His sovereign grace toward us. Amen. Now there's, now there's nothing less for us to do. We'll just have a couple of songs and respond and then we'll go home, right? No, we're not. You know better. We've got scripture to consider, right? Keeping all that in mind, we, Paul now has some words for us about both electing grace and judicial hardening. Okay? After we've thought about all the, all the, the work of God in salvation, Paul now is going to talk to us yet again about the nation of Israel, about ethnic Israel, right? And you remember the question, the question that's, that's at hand. Has God cast off all the physical descendants of Abraham? And it's a good question, right? The Gentiles, not all of them, but a significant number were being saved. They were responding to the gospel by faith. They were being rescued out of idolatry while very few Jews were coming to Christ. And so the question is, has God cast Israel off completely? Now, the answer, of course, is no. Paul was saved. And he goes into describing that. And he talks about the remnant that was saved in the day of Elijah. The apostles were all Israelites. The 3,000 that were saved at Pentecost, they were Jews, right? And just as in the day of Elijah, Paul says, so too, at this present time, there's a remnant that's chosen by grace. And if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so in this text this morning, Paul is really summarizing and describing God's dealings as it regards salvation. And it's primarily about his ways with the Jews, okay? But that's not an excuse for us to check out because there's a great deal of contemporary application in this text. And so I want to look at it. And the first thing that I want us to see here is the failure, the worthlessness of Israel's hubris, okay? The, the Israel's hubris in their failure. Look at it. Let's just read all of verse 9, then we'll kind of take it phrase by phrase. Paul says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. What then? What are we to say about the current state of the Jews? That's the idea. And Paul says, well, here's the deal. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was Israel seeking? Here's what they were seeking. They were seeking to, seeking to establish a righteousness of their own before God, right? They were trying to establish a righteousness of their own, not according to the scriptures, before the living God. They were trying to twist God's arm and make God accept them according to their own desires and their own whims, right? That's never going to work out. Nobody manipulates God. They were trying, they, they were, they failed to obtain this right standing with God. And we know it because Paul's already told us, if we go back to, for instance, Romans 9, 30, 32, 
because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone, right? And then in verses uh, 3 and 4 of chapter 10, he says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God, to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And we know the deal, right? The Jews, the lost Jews, in their pride and their arrogance as a whole, believed that they could make themselves righteous before God through their own efforts and through their own work and through their own striving according to their own system of righteousness. Now, here's the deal. You know, we see all the striving and the, and the, and the effort that's been made, you know, by the Jews to try to make themselves acceptable to God. And the Jewish apologist among us, or the Gen X through Gen Zer, might say, but they were trying. I mean, they were really trying. They were, they were giving it their best effort. They were going all out. They were doing everything that they could be expected to do. They were striving to be moral and good and upstanding according to their own standard of the law. Maybe they were a little off, but they were zealous. Shouldn't that count for something? Well, if you've grown up in the age of participation trophies, perhaps. No, I mean that. The idea of a participation trophy when I was growing up was abhorrent. Like, I don't know if you know this, but former Steelers linebacker James Harrison got in trouble a few years ago because his boys were given a participation trophy for playing rec league football. And he took those participation trophies and he broke them in front of them. And parents went nuts. All the snowflakes melted, buddy. They were so upset. And James Harrison is, I'm not raising my kids to be participants. I'm raising my sons to be champions. There's only one way that happens. And people were really freaked out over it because they tried real hard. But they fell short. That's a little digression. But here's my point. We look at that and we go, well, you know, come on. They're trying hard. Shouldn't that count for something? The short answer to that is no. No. And that might seem harsh and unloving. Not even a consolation prize? No. That might seem harsh and unloving. But not when you think about what human efforts at salvation say about God and about his Christ. First, listen to me, to pursue salvation by human works, by your own man-made religious system, is to devalue and defame God. It is to regulate him to a place of insignificance. Follow with me. What Israel did is what everybody who makes up their own religion does. Okay? They got to reinvent God according to their own taste and their own liking. And then they've got to come up with religious rules and ideas that appeal to that God that they've recreated. And then they need to codify those things and follow those rules as best they can. And then presume that such rule following will make themselves acceptable to their new and improved version of God. And they minimize the one true God's holiness and their sin. And they reject a righteousness that demands that they confess their sinfulness and their need for God's grace. And they refuse to acknowledge their need for a savior, a redeemer, and a wrath bearer that only God can provide. And so what God becomes in reality is an afterthought. Everything depends upon them. It depends upon their ability to perform at a religious level that is acceptable to them. And in a very real sense, the Jews depersonalized the personal God and made him and what he desires and what he commands utterly unimportant, 
unnecessary, insignificant, and superfluous, just as all sorts of people do today. They didn't need God in their system at all. All they needed to do was hit their benchmarks, and they were fine. But moreover, this approach completely devalues the Lord Jesus Christ and makes him out to be worthless. To think that you can save yourself by your own works, to think that I can somehow save myself in my own strength, makes Jesus Christ out to be a charlatan. It's to say that he's not the Son of God. It is to say that his righteous and sinless life was either a legend or it was of no account. It's to say that his sacrificial death upon the cross was either deserved or that it was pointless and needless and vain and insufficient. It's to say that his resurrection from the dead was a myth. It's to say that the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Father in heaven exalted... By saying of him, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And this is my beloved son. Listen to him. It is to say of the son of God, you know what? I'm not impressed. I'm not convinced. I'm not persuaded. I'm not interested. And such hubris and such arrogant pride, beloved, that is beyond offensive to the holy God who gave his only son. And you know what else? It exposes the corruption of the soul that says, I can earn righteousness with God by my works. Human works, relative standing with others, self-justification, self-salvation cannot obtain righteousness with God. Salvation is never about your human works. It's all about saving grace. It's all about saving grace. When you think about what the foolishness and the folly and the sinful arrogance of saying, I can stand before the holy God, a sinner, and I can, I can prove my worth to him and I can earn my salvation from him by my own works. When you realize what that says about almighty God and what it says about the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, you realize how utterly abhorrent, obnoxious, and ridiculous that is before Almighty God. Don't you? It's all about saving grace. Look at verse 7 again. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The nation of Israel failed in its efforts. The nation of Israel failed in its efforts, but... The elect obtained the righteousness of God, which is only received through faith in Christ. Obviously, Paul's talking here about the remnant, right? He's talking about those within the nation of Israel that were chosen by God for salvation, right? And he says, look, here's the deal. When you look at the nation of Israel, there's two chunks within Israel. There's the chunk of Israel that tries to make themselves, that tried to make themselves acceptable to God by their own works. God has rejected them. And then there's that group. A small group, a remnant, upon whom God has placed His saving sovereign grace. And they have obtained righteousness with God, not because of their works, but because of the saving, choosing love of God. That's what he's saying. What makes the difference between these two groups? It's that little word, elect, which means someone who is chosen out of a greater number. That word elect speaks to sovereign and saving and choosing love. And what we're supposed to see when we read that itty-bitty phrase is this, is that the root of election is grace. 
I've told you this before, but I need to remind you of it today because that's why Paul is saying, what then? Let's take a break. Let's think about this. I know you know this, but I want you to hear me when I say this to you again and let this be dug deep down into your soul. Election is not based on your merit. It's not based on your merit. It's not based on your relative goodness in contrast with others. It's not conditioned upon anything good or virtuous in you. It's not conditioned upon anything meritorious or honorable or commendable or praiseworthy in you. Those things before the bar of God do not exist in you. Election is God's sovereign choice before the foundation of the world according to His own purpose and His own free determination To choose to love with an everlasting and saving love. To choose to be gracious and compassionate. And to redeem for himself, as his own people, specific individuals. Unworthy and hell-deserving sinners by nature from out of the entire sinful mass of humanity. It can't be merit-based. Because every human being is holy without merit. And it's entirely undeserved because all we deserve is hell. What lay behind the salvation of every Christian is God's sovereign grace and His unfathomable electing love. And you believe that? Do you believe that? All we deserve is hell and death. You understand that, right? Right? When people talk about deserving a vacation, no, you don't. No, you really don't. I remember, you know, when people are like, well, you deserve this. No, you don't deserve it. You deserve hell and death. That's what you deserve. I remember my mother-in-law freaked out one time. We were at her house, right? And she was getting the kids ice cream. And I was like, don't get them too much, you know. And, you know, our kids were fat when they were little, so they were fun to feed. And, uh, no, they were. They were they're enjoyable to feed. And I remember she was getting them ice cream, and she's like, oh, they deserve it. And I said, all they deserve is hell and death. Man, she looked at me. Let's just say I slept with one eye open the rest of the time that we were home, right? It's true. That is all we deserve. All we deserve is hell and death. And what lays behind the salvation, what lay behind the salvation of every Christian is God's sovereign grace, His unfathomable electing love. Now that doesn't negate the necessity of personal faith in Christ, right? Like some people think election, they don't understand it. They think election means, well, you don't have to do anything. God just saves you. No, no. It doesn't negate the necessity of personal faith in Christ. It doesn't negate a personal response to the gospel for salvation, but neither does it diminish, and neither does it diminish the necessity of good works and of growth in grace and of obedience to his commands. Here's the deal though. When God saves his elect according to his grace, here's what he does. He comes to a dead sinner and a rebel soul and he changes that person's nature and desires. He changes with that person longs for and he does that by making them to be born again from the dead okay he changes our desires the effort you've heard people say maybe talk about you know you know election means that god just takes people to heaven kicking and screaming against their will no that is not what it means that's not what it means out of god's sovereign election in the plan of redemption what he actually does is he changes the hardened will of a human being He transforms it. 
He changes a person's desire and nature. He opens blinded eyes to, to sin and to Christ as the only Savior. God actively and powerfully changes the sinner's nature to repent and to believe. And then he directly and personally by the Holy Spirit works inwardly to give that soul a new disposition and new desire that results in faith and obedience to the gospel. My faith and my repentance do not cause God's grace to be effective toward me. Okay? That's to get it backwards. My faith and repentance, they don't activate God's grace or secure God's grace as some would claim. Like, you act first and then God meets you. No! God is the one who does the acting. For instance, I don't know. I get to pick a million passages, but I'll pick one that's familiar. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Time out. What were we? What were we? Dead in our trespasses. Oh, but wait a minute. Didn't, were we activating our faith and our, and our repentance? No, we weren't. Because those things didn't exist in us because we were spiritually dead. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did God do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Right. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not the result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does that mean? Here's what that means. Even the very desire to respond to Christ in faith, even the very desire to respond to the gospel, to truly trust the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior and Redeemer and to repent of my sins and to honestly turn from them and from self to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is the result of God's grace toward us. We need to really understand the depth of this. We need to get it. Look. It's God's grace that is the unshakable and unassailable and the immovable root of every human impulse to a saving relationship with Him. Of every aspect of salvation and sanctification. Listen to me. It is not my impulse of faith that draws the Lord to me. It's not like God's got like a faith detector up in heaven. You know, and and He's just waiting for the beacon to go off somewhere so you can step in and show grace. No. No. Nope. God's grace is the root of my faith. It's the root of your faith if you are in Christ. It's not the impulse of of my faith that draws the Lord to me. It's His sovereign grace toward me that produces the very desire to seek Him for salvation. To trust in Christ. To repent and believe. To pursue obedience to Jesus and to do the good works which God prepared for us beforehand to walk in. Even our good works are a fruit of what? Grace. All of salvation is rooted in God's eternal sovereign grace, in His sovereign election of a sinner like me. Now, I'm going to tell you what, and I want you to hear me when I say this. Knowing that and believing it is the source, it's, 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 it's encouraging on so many levels. Think about this. If my salvation or your salvation, if it's entirely of God's sovereign grace displayed in election and it has nothing to do with my merit at all, then I know that I am loved by God because He loves me and that's it. 
I don't have to perform to get God's love. You know how annoying people are that think they have to perform to get your love, right? Like they drive you crazy. It's like, look, I love you. You can stop. We don't have to act like that. If, 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 if God, you know, I'm beloved of God and I didn't earn it. And I didn't do anything to entice God to love me. He simply loves me with an everlasting covenant love because he loves me and he cannot change. When I realize that salvation is all of grace, I know, I know with certainty that God will complete the good work that he has begun in me. It's not going to get to a point where God's like, man, you're too difficult. I'm just going to leave you like you are. No. He'll complete his good work. I know, if I know salvation is entirely by his grace, I know that he will never cast me away because God doesn't change and his love doesn't waver. If my salvation is of God from beginning to end, I know that I'm secured in him. And I know that I am assured of my salvation because it all rests in him. If my salvation is entirely of God's grace and he has done the work to redeem me through his son, Jesus Christ, then I can hear the words of Paul. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And I can say yes and amen. That is not a burden to me. That's a pleasure. I can say I'm, I'm freed from the tyranny of the fear of man and seeking the approval of man. I can stand firm in every situation. I can say, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. He is my deliverer, my God, my rock, and whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold because I know that he has chosen me to be his own from before the foundation of the world and even the hardships that I suffer will redound to his glory and my good. Right? Right? I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He's talking about the doctrine of election. He talks about it a lot, but one of the things he said was this. He goes, <laughs> he said, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me. For I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with a special love. There's a reason Paul talks about election so much. It's because it matters. The great distinction between all Christians and all unbelievers is this. It's God's sovereign election. God has given sovereign grace to some as undeserving as they are and to others he is rightfully and others he is rightfully hardened in their sin and the difference between the saved gentiles and specifically here in this text the saved remnant among the Jews and those who are be, who are lost is that God has given grace to some of them he has elected some of them and he has judicially hardened the rest look at it pick it up again with me in verse 7 and we'll read through to verse Eight. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Here's what Paul's saying. Here, here's, what, here's what Paul is saying. And none of us should take this lightly or treat it flippantly. This is serious and it's deep truth that we cannot just casually pass over. Here's what Paul is saying. God gives some, saves some according to his grace. God saves some according to his grace. And others, he hardens in their unbelief. Now that's a plain statement. There's no equivocation here by Paul at all. 
That's a plain, direct statement. And it's a little scary, isn't it? Isn't it? There are some important things to keep in mind as we consider these words, right? First of all, God is always just. He is never unjust. He cannot be, right? And then second, God in dealing with Israel is dealing with fallen mankind, right? And fallen mankind is not neutral. We don't come out of the womb neutral. Newsflash. We don't. That's why you don't have to teach your kids how to sin. We don't come out innocent or good. We come out under the condemnation of, of, of Adam's sin. We come out under the condemnation of God and wrath for Adam's sin. And we are by nature children of wrath, rejectors of God and unbelievers. And so we need to keep in mind that when God judicially hardens a sinner, God is not actively making them to disbelieve. He does not have to. He's not putting unbelief in a heart where once there was faith or an inclination to faith. God's not the author of evil in somebody's life. We unbelieve just fine on our own. When God judicially hardens someone, what God is doing is this. He solidifies and he sets that person and their determined unbelief that was already present in their heart. He confirms them in it. He sets it like concrete. He judicially hardens them and their stubbornness and rebelliousness and their unbelief in their God-rejecting state. And he does it as an act of sovereign judgment. It's God giving them over fully to the choice that they've made with all their hearts. God doesn't violate someone when he hardens them. He doesn't treat them unjustly. He gives them exactly what they desire and they get exactly what they deserve, which is justice. Now that's a hard truth, man, but it's undeniable. We've already seen this. Paul described it, didn't he, in Romans 1 when he described the guilt of fallen humanity before God? Remember when he said these words? Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He gave them up to the lust of their hearts and their disbelief and their hatred and their rejection of God. He didn't put something there that wasn't already there. He confirmed what was there. Or for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Or, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. When God hardens a sinner in unbelief, He hands them over to a debased mind and allows them to pursue their heart's desires and to reap the consequences of those desires. That's what He does. In other words, here's what Paul is saying to us. God is not just waiting until the day of days. God is not just waiting until the day of days. To pour out his judgment. His judgment is active right now. Right now. For God to judicially harden a sinner is not injustice. It's perfect justice. And God's hardening of sinners in their unbelief is the foretaste of his final judgment that is visited right now in time. Now I know that's hard to hear. I know that is hard to hear. I know that's hard to comprehend. I know that's hard for us to consider. Especially in an American church culture where the justice of God has been diminished and devalued. And where there's this huge imbalance between God's holiness and His love, right? In fact, His love is often redefined in terms of Americanized fleshly love. We're so accustomed to God being gracious. 
We're so accustomed to God acting in mercy and forbearance that whenever God acts in justice, we are almost shocked and astonished. In fact, maybe even a little offended. How could God do that? Beloved, we need to understand something. That God is just in His judgments. And His wrath right now is active against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who have suppressed the truth. And God never judges someone improperly or unrighteously or at the wrong time. And His justice, beloved, is not asleep. That judicial hardening is exactly what was happening to the unbelieving Jews in Paul's day, which explains their pig-headedness and their refusal to face the truth when the truth could not have been more powerfully demonstrated in the character and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it, man. They were without excuse, weren't they? Weren't they? Christ's sinless perfection, His preaching and His authority, they acknowledged His authority. They were like, man, He speaks like nobody ever. Right. The miracles and the works that He wrought in obedience to the Father, His identity as God's Son, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, one after the other. His sacrificial death for sinners... Man, they refused to acknowledge the breathtaking fact of his resurrection, even to the point of undertaking methodical persecution of his followers. They refused to hear the spirit-empowered preaching of the apostles as they preached from the scriptures that Christ is Lord. They were witnesses to all of this, and yet they hardened themselves in unbelief. And God hardened them in their own hardness of heart. He confirmed in them their condemnation. How does God do it? Paul describes it to us from from the Old Testament Scriptures. He strings two verses together, one of them from Isaiah 29, verse 10, the other from Deuteronomy 29, and verse 4. Look at it. He says, As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. What's a spirit of stupor? It's a spirit of sleep. Spirit of sleepfulness, sleepiness, of insensitivity, of, of ignorance, of reality. There used to be some people that came to this church that were struck with a spirit of stupor as soon as I got up to preach. I'm not laughing about that. I mean, if you can fall asleep in the preaching of the Word of God, you better check your soul, son. It describes that feeling that you get when you're first awake, right? When, when, say it's in the middle of the night and you're out of sorts, you're disoriented, you're in between deep sleep and you're in wakefulness. And that's exactly what God gave to the Jews whom He hardened. He gave them a spirit of stupor so that they were insensible to the truth of God. So that they were ignorant of the seriousness of their sins and and of God's, you know, righteous wrath and, and of their need for a Savior. They were oblivious to the danger they were in, unaware that they were standing on the precipice of eternal ruin and damnation. And they had no eyes to see the glory of Christ, that they should desire Him. And they were willfully blind, and so God confirmed them in their blindness. They had no ears to ear, hear. Not that they didn't hear the gospel preached, they did. And not that they didn't even understand the facts of the gospel, but they had no desire to hear the words of life and receive them. They refused to believe the clear truth of God, and so God stopped up their ears. And in so doing confirmed and condemned them in their sin. What was true of the vast majority of Israel in the Old Testament was now being brought to its fullness in Paul's day. They just simply to see, refused to see and refused to hear, and God hardened them in their unbelief, and He confirmed them in their spiritual blindness and their deafness. Let me give you an illustration of our own, from our own day for how this works. Because right? see, the issue is not about how intellectually you know 
how intellectual you are or how, you know, academically inspired you are or anything else. It, it just doesn't matter. It's not the issue at all. Proof of that is I, I don't know how many of you have heard of Christopher Hitchens. He was a prominent member of a group of, 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 of atheists that stylized themselves as the new atheists. Like that make them better than the old atheists or something. I don't know. But he's a part of the new atheists. And he was the author of this screed that was titled, God is not great. How religion poisons everything. Well, he was being interviewed this one time by a Unitarian minister. And Unitarian means I don't believe the Bible. That's what Unitarian means. But anyway, he was being interviewed by this Unitarian minister by the name of Marilyn Sewell. And during the interview, she was trying to distance herself from the doctrines of biblical Christianity and to try to win, you know, Hitchens' approval, right? She thought that, you know, she'd somehow get him to like her. And as she was trying to do this, Hitchens said to her, just cut her off and said to her, I would say to you that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and that by his sacrifice your sins are forgiven, then you're not really in any meaningful sense a Christian. I want you to think about that. He got the facts right, didn't he? Didn't he? I mean, that's pretty much it. Believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Christ and Messiah, that he rose again from the dead, and that by his sacrifices your sins are forgiven. He got the facts right, but he refused to believe what was clearly plain. Why? Because God gave Christopher Hitchens a spirit of stupor. Because he gave him eyes that wouldn't see and ears that wouldn't hear. Because God hardened him in his unbelief, and Hitchens died in his sin. Ironically enough, the man that went around preaching that God is not great died of cancer that originated in his vocal cords. How about that? Now he knows God is great. Is God unfair with Christopher Hitchens? Keep that thought in mind. Then Paul quotes here from Psalm 69. We'll come back to that in a second. Keep this. These quotes from Paul, Psalm 69, one that's rich in messianic imagery, right? I already told you it's an imprecatory psalm. And it speaks actually. If you read Psalm 69, it speaks of the judgment of those who hate God. The just judgment of those who hate God and who reject His Christ. And David, he says, he he quotes from Psalm 69, he says, And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is a prayer of David against the ungodly. But it doesn't just come out of nowhere. In fact, I want you to take note of the word retribution. That matters. God's judgment is not arbitrary or impulsive, beloved. It's not arbitrary or impulsive. In fact, again, if you read the whole psalm, what you'll find is that this prophetically describes the Jews' rejection and persecution of the Lord Jesus Christ, which demands the judgment of God, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And that's why... David mentions here retribution. What is retribution? It's recompense, isn't it? It's payback. It's, it's, it's a recompense for what you have earned. It's payment for what you have done. So here's what David's picturing. Here's what Paul, here's why Paul is, is quoting this. The table speaks of a place of fellowship and communion, doesn't it? Like when you sit down to table. That's why we have, you know, unity dinners. Because the whole idea is you sit down at table, you break a little bread, you know, your heart unfolds to one another and you talk and it's like, right, you're, you, you find this unity around the table, right? Only in this case, this is an assembly of those who have rejected the Christ. 
and who encourage one another in their rebellion against the Christ, and who encourage one another in this dishonoring of God's Son. And these people who look at all of these blessings that they have, quote-unquote, or, you know, whatever the good gifts that they've received from God as something to which they're entitled, as something that they have earned. And they comfort themselves that in spite of their unbelief, they have all of these things, so their unbelief must be correct. Christ must not be the Messiah. See? And he prays that it would become to them a snare, all their good things. Think about it, right? They had already been the Israelites' recipients of much. They were recipients of, you know, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises and all that that Paul talks about, right? They had all that stuff, yet they didn't believe. And worse, what's worse is they encouraged others in their unbelief. And Paul's prayer is that, you know, this unity, this, this fellowship of the unbelieving... Let that table become a snare and a trap and something from which they'll never escape. He prayed that their fellowship of rebellion would actually become a stumbling block over which they would fall and that their united rebellion would actually turn to retribution from God. And he prays that they would be struck blind so they won't be delivered and that their backs would be bent forever. That is, that they would bear responsibility forever for their own condition. For their own hardening. Now what in the world? That does not sound very Christian, does it? Does it? That's not a trick question. It doesn't sound very Christian, right? We wouldn't say that anyway. Our modern day Christianity would would not say that sounds Christian. So what's the deal? Is David just a, quote, hater? Is Paul just this hard hearted jerk? Is he being callous and quoting from this psalm? Of course not, because this is just the guy that we read saying, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, right? So how do you explain this? How do you explain this love on one hand for these, for those, those of his, that are kinsmen, according to the flesh, that are lost? How do you explain that love on one hand? And him quoting this psalm. Here's how. Paul had a deep love for sinners. And he longed for them to be saved. Indeed, he poured out his life's blood that they might be saved. Not in the same way as Christ, but he lost his life preaching the gospel. Right? But his greater allegiance, his greater devotion, his greater love, his first love was to God and to the Christ who saved him. And his longing and his desire was this, that the Lord would be glorified and that he would receive the honor of which he is due and that blaspheming tongues would be stilled either through their redemption or through their just judgment. Now I would say to you, when we look at these words, we consider them. It's not hard to trace the parallel, is it, to our own day? Can we not see God at work in our own nation hardening the hearts of unbelievers? Despite the blessing of the availability of two centuries of gospel preaching and all of the social and material benefits that have come out of that, the good gifts that God has given to us, our society increasingly refuses to acknowledge God in any meaningful way, doesn't it? People have taken what is good and ruined it. They've taken a blessing 
and perverted it. What's been beneficial and made it into a curse. What's been gained and made it into loss. They've taken God's good gifts and made them idols. And the blessings of God have become a snare to so many. Refusing to acknowledge God and trust in Christ. Having hardened their hearts to God. God confirms them in their unbelief. And we see the results of such hardening every day. Turn on your TV for five minutes if you can stomach it. But it's not, listen to me now, and I want you to hear me when I say this. It's not all the so-called individuals out there with blue hair that look like all the other individuals out there with blue hair. It's not just the perverse, the openly perverse, the openly antagonistic toward God, the openly rejecting of God, nor is it only the Christopher Hitchens of the world. I mean, listen. Not every Jew was a Pharisee and a Sadducee, right? Right? They weren't. In fact, Sam and I were were talking about this the other night. Listen, it's not just those that are openly perverse. It's the nice, moral, upstanding, kind and sweet and compassionate who reject the gospel. And their rejection of Christ and of the God of scriptures is their evidence of a hardened heart. But she's so sweet and she hates Jesus. But she's so thoughtful and she hates Christ. But he's such a good dude, and he despises God. They may even be good social conservatives that would fit in our group, you know? And generally nice people, as human niceness goes, but they're not broken at the foot of the cross over the sinfulness. And and they're not broken over their need for a Savior. And because they think that they're generally good people, they just don't see how thinking you're generally good is such a great offense to God's holiness and to the sacrifice and the passion of His Son. They're not convinced of man's depravity. They're not convinced of his absolute inability and unwillingness to come to Christ apart from God's grace. The more they resist, the harder they become until eventually God judicially hardens them and sets their unbelief in stone. Now certainly God doesn't harden everyone to that extent, right? Right? You and I are examples of that. We're evidence that God does not harden everyone to that extent. But I want you to hear me. God surely is hardening some. Well, what's the answer to that? Well, the only answer to that, beloved, is God's electing grace. And the only way that God's electing grace is revealed is through the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of Christ and Him crucified. The preaching of the glory and the majesty of God. And the testimony of grace-transformed lives. we got to believe that God is able to save the most hardened of sinners by His grace, right? While we also confess... That he is just and righteous to harden and confirm unbelief in those who have hardened themselves against the gospel. Because in both, in salvation and in hardening, in election and in hardening, God is glorified as God. So what do we say to these things? What do we say to these things? Let me just give you a couple of things. Well, the first thing I would say to you is not popular these days. But it's certainly true. When we read this text and we think about it and we really behold what's in this text, it ought to inspire in us a sense of awe, reverence, and fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. These words are not intended to tickle our ears. But to make us see that God's not tame. And God's not manageable. And God's not manipulatable. You can't be manipulated. And He's not to be trifled with. 
We need to see God for who He is, for who the Scriptures say He is, as the holy and righteous God, as the God of enduring love and the God of fierce wrath, wrath, as the God of inflexible justice and the God of unfathomable grace, as the God who sits in the heavens and does as He pleases and no one can resist His will. That's you and me. Seeing God like that, beholding Him like that, should fill us with godly fear. And yet in our day, in our day, there are whole segments of the professing church that are doing everything they can to remove the fear of God from the church. That's a recipe for disaster. And it's very evident. We see it. A.W. Pink said this long, last, the, in the last century. He said, the God of this century... No more, he's talking about the 21st century, or 20th century, but it applies to us. The God of this century no more resembles the supreme sovereign of holy writ than does the dim flickering of a candle, the glory of the midday sun. The God, quote unquote, who is now talked about in the average pulpit and spoken of in the ordinary Sunday school and mentioned in much of the religious literature of the day and preached in most of the so-called Bible conferences is the figment of human imagination, an invention of maudlin sentimentality. The heathen outside of the pale of Christendom form, quote, gods out of wood and stone, while the millions of heathen inside Christendom manufacture a, quote, God out of their own carnal mind. In reality, they are all atheists. For there is no other possible alternative between an absolutely supreme God and no God at all. A, quote, God whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, possesses no title to deity. And so far from being a fit object of worship, he merits nothing but contempt. He's right. Here's a little more contemporary voice, Phil Riken. He says, more than anything else, Failing to take God seriously is the problem with the contemporary church. Wow. More than anything else, failing to take God seriously is the problem with the contemporary church. We trivialize the holiness of God, and so we end up with a trivial view of sin. We trivialize the majesty of God, so we end up with trivial worship. We trivialize the truth of God, and so we end up with a trivial grasp of His Word. We trivialize the judgment of God and so we end up with a trivial appreciation for the atonement of Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you, like, you know, what's the big problem with the contemporary church? You might say, ungodly and unbiblical music. A confused gospel. Ungodliness in the pews. Ungodliness in the pulpit. You might list a million different things. But you know what? They all go back to that one thing that Riken said. It's failing to take God seriously, isn't it? Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. First thing we need is to have a healthy fear of Almighty God. Second, Christian, these words ought to also fill your heart with wonder at God's love to you. Right? I mean, really, when you think about this, that that we all deserve the hardening wrath and judgment of God is obvious, right? We all deserve that. But that we all deserve the hardening wrath and the judgment of God 
should make his sovereign love and electing grace and the cross that much more precious to us, right? God, God has chosen to make us his own. And it was sovereign grace and grace alone that did it. And when God hardens other people in their rebellion and unbelief and he gives them over to their heart's desires, he doesn't do them any injustice. We deserve the exact same thing. Why would he save us? You ever honestly asked yourself that question? Why would God save me? I don't think you come to understand the depravity of your own, your own self the, the, the depth of your sin and the greatness of God's grace until, driven by the gospel, you ask yourself that question. Why in the world would God save me? It's by sheer, utter, undeserved grace that we're redeemed. And for that, we ought to treasure Christ and His cross. I mean, really treasure it. Really understand what took place upon that cross where He suffered, Jesus did, the ultimate malediction, not benediction, the ultimate malediction, the ultimate curse, that all rejectors of God deserve because of their sin. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn His back on you and remove His peace from you forever. That's what we should hear. But Christ suffered that for us on the cross so that we can hear the benediction from God, right? That's recorded for us in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Yes, thank you. Third, it's because we receive such grace that we ought to be the most humble and loving and forgiving and faithful and, and gospel entreating people on the earth. Shouldn't we? I mean, we ought to be, we should be earnestly pursuing and pleading with people to come to Christ, to repent and believe, to receive eternal life. We ought to be continually praying that God be gracious to them as he has been to us. Knowing that the Lord is the one who has the power to open hearts and, 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 and give us confidence, you know, ought to give us confidence in pursuing lost souls. God's the one who saves. He's powerful to, to use a faithful witness for his purposes, right? So we ought to be people that are earnestly pursuing the lost to be saved. But mixed with our longing for the lost to be saved must also be a deeper and an ultimate desire that God should be glorified for who He is. We want people to be saved. We preach the gospel to them. We long for them and we love them. And we long to see them saved. But we must have a deeper desire and a greater love that God's glory would be fully revealed and irreverent mouths would be stopped. Again, either by God's gracious work of salvation or in His just work of retribution, right? Number four, I want to say this. Though we affirm that God is sovereign, that doesn't relieve us of our responsibility to keep our hearts soft toward God and His Word. You hearing me? It's not like, well, if God is sovereign, I don't have to do anything. No, you do. You need to do what's necessary to keep your heart soft toward God, to guard your heart from the snare of Western culture, to keep yourself humble and teachable before God, and to come to this realization. Belonging to God will never make you popular. It won't. It's not meant to. Jesus said, if they hate you, know that they hated me first. We're a remnant. And as a remnant, we need to realize that truth is defined not by popular opinion, but by the Word of God. You don't figure out what's true by counting noses. You figure out what is true by reading the Word of God. And we must be content with God's approval, even if all of mankind rejects us for the sake of Jesus. 
Here's the last thing. For those who are not trusting in Christ alone for salvation, I've said this before. I'm going to say this to you again. You'll probably hear me say this a thousand more times before one of us dies. Your responsibility is not to discern whether or not you are elect any more than it's my responsibility to identify the elect and preach only to them. My calling is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to every creature. Your responsibility, God's command, is that you repent and believe. So on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you see yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior, in need of grace, if you need forgiveness and righteousness that only God can give, then come to Christ and call upon Him in faith and believe with all your heart that He's done everything necessary to save your soul and to rescue you from the wrath of God that is coming upon mankind and to give you a righteousness by which you are saved and accepted by God. Believe the promise of God that anyone who believes in Christ will have everlasting life and that anyone who comes to Him, Christ will not cast out. I know there are some of you here this morning. I'm not going to call you by name. I'm not even going to look at you right now. Close my eyes. I know there are some of you here this morning who have heard the gospel and you've put off repenting and you've put off believing in Christ. You're going to do it. You're going to get there. You just haven't done it yet. And I'm saying this especially to the students but anybody who sat under the preaching of the gospel here for the last 17 years. There's some of you, I know, that have put off repenting and believing in Christ. The danger is this, is that the more that you hear the gospel and you refuse to respond, the harder your heart gets. The harder it gets. And you will fail to find the gospel as compelling or convicting as perhaps it once was. And then you'll settle into a pattern of quiet and stubborn refusal. And you'll rely, you'll just say, no, my religious efforts are enough. My religious efforts are enough. You'll settle into a quiet pattern of stubborn refusal and you'll make yourself harder until at some point God makes your hard heart, your hard heart impervious to the grace of God. Can God still crush a heart of stone? Of course He can. Of course He can. And there are many who have run from God that God has chased down and by The word of God, the hammer of God, he's broken a hardened heart and saved them. But he may also harden the already hardened heart beyond recovery. I want you to hear me when I say this to you. Right now, if you're hearing my voice, this for you is a moment of grace. The Lord Jesus Christ has yet again been set before you as the only Savior. I'm telling you, do not presume upon God's grace. Do not presume that you're going to hear this message again before your eyes are blinded or ears are stopped. This is a moment of grace. Call upon the Lord who is mighty to save. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. How? How will you escape if you neglect such a great salvation? You won't. Let's pray. Father in heaven, almighty God, King of glory, righteous Lord, I pray that by your grace and by your, your, your faithfulness and your goodness, Lord, you would apply uh, your word to our hearts and that, Lord God, we would, we would respond. I pray, Father, for those who are not saved, 
who know the gospel, who know, like Christopher Hitchens, the guts of the gospel. And, Father, that they would hear them with new ears and they would receive them with a regenerate heart and they would have eyes to see and ears to hear and, Lord, they would call upon Jesus and be saved today. Be saved today. And I pray, Lord God, for your people here this morning. Help us to hear these words today. And may they do the work in our souls we desperately need. I pray in Jesus' name.